This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good evening. Can you hear me from here? All right, thank you. Um, it's kind of like the bridge of a ship. I hope I don't walk off of it. Um, thanks for coming out this evening. Um, I did go back to teach at a number of universities and colleges, including the Army War College, which is in Carlisle, Dickinson, Carnegie Mellon, Cheney, among several of them, because I, I really do enjoy being with youth. Uh, they're not burdened with experience. And if you come aboard with that aircraft carrier, George Washington, that Katie mentioned, there's 5,000 sailors, and their average age is 19 and a half. They run the nuclear reactor that powers that small city at sea. They fix the plane of a pilot before he or she gets in. And the pilot never asks them a question. They just give them a salute, the button pushes, and off they go into the night, slung by a catapult like a giant sling into the, into the darkness. My mom, who's here with me today, got her master's degree here at Villanova uh, in mathematics. Um, was a high school math teacher for 25, 27 years. And she'd come aboard and said, Joe, these are my kids from high school. I said, yeah, mom. I get them a year later, and they're mighty fine. They are mighty fine. I mean, I lived with them. I worked with them. I went to war with them. And I have a great belief in the youth of America. But tonight, to start off, about the topic that Katie introduced, I want to take you to two nights in my life. The very first night was when we arrived off the coast of uh, Pakistan to begin the retaliatory strikes from my aircraft carrier battle group and the, into Afghanistan. And that evening, I launched eight pilots. Seven of them had been in the very first Iraq war. They were pros. They had done it. They had been there. They had seen it. And that evening, I launched someone who, what we call a nugget, the very first time overseas, over a foreign country, never mind into combat. She was a young 27-year-old woman who disregarded and proved to be the one that evening that felt she had to disregard standing orders not to dive below 27,000 feet, 20, excuse me, 20,000 feet without permission. Because we knew that the Taliban might have Stinger missiles that could go to about 18,000 feet. And before someone dove lower, we wanted to ensure that we had a few moments by other classified means to see whether those weapons were down there, or at least the probability that they might. But eight special forces had been ambushed. Four had died immediately. And the other four called up and said, we have moments left. They're too close for a laser-guided munition just dive, strafe, cause confusion, and we can get out of here. She was the one that never asked permission. From 20,000 feet to 3,000 feet, she dove three times at 0200 in the morning. And those four men picked up their dead comrades and came home. That woman was willing to risk as a minimum her career, if not her life, in order to do what she felt was necessary. But let me take you to another night in my life. We had been in the district, and my congressional district uh, was Delaware County, part of Monco, up, up near here and all. And Secretary of the Treasury Paulson had asked Speaker Pelosi to get all the Democratic Congress members on the line, because we were the majority party in the House. And anything that has to do with appropriations has to begin, as you well know, from the Constitution in the House, not the Senate. And so the, we all got on the line. We were in our district. And you could hear almost the timber in President Bush's Secretary of the Treasury, Paulson's voice, as he said, if we do not act within 10 to 14 days, we will be in a recession that will be as great as the Deep Depression. White Lehman Brothers had collapsed. People didn't know what was going on. And so we all came back to Congress on Monday. And in that 
when you come back, we go into what's called a Democratic caucus, to where all, only the Congress members are, and a few staff members, such as Ms. Pelosi's uh, staff members. And as they, we were briefed upon what had to be done, in the Democratic caucus, you have an opportunity then to file up and get in front of a microphone and comment as a congressperson what your thoughts are and what's being proposed. And what was being proposed was what eventually became known as the bailout bill. But the first four members of the Democratic caucus, my caucus, that got up essentially said the same thing. They caused it. Don't touch it or we will be held accountable. To one of my favorite Congress members got up, Barney Frank. Favorite, because he's the only congressman who endorsed me when I ran against my party's desires in the Senate primary. But, and said, got up and said, shut the up. We have a problem, and we have to fix it. I mean, I'm just a sailor. All I could think as I watched these four men and women stand up and say what they did is the United States ship had been torpedoed. We're arguing who's going to be held accountable rather than caulking the holes and figure out how best to caulk it. We can have disagreements about that, but worrying about ones being held responsible for preventing the ship from sinking was something that made me harken back to the first night I told you about, that woman. I think the biggest deficit in America today is not the debt. It's the trust deficit. And for me, leaders are given authority and responsibility, but with them both goes accountability. And accountability is answering for oneself, for one's deeds, not one's words, for what one does or fails to do, not what you say or blame someone else for. Those two stories speak about one of the things that as we do questions and answers, I think is most amiss in America today, whether it's Wall Street, whether it's government, whether it's Democrats, whether it's Republicans, whether it's civic leaders or judicial branch leaders, is the willingness to be held accountable for one's responsibility. I learned this lesson from one of those young men and women I told you about, average age, 19 and a half, on that aircraft carrier. When a pilot gets in, as I told you, they just salute the young man or woman who's fixed their planes, assuming it's all right. And then they turn on their engines and they strap that plane to a catapult. And then they push a button and they fling that plane into the night. And you drop about 20 or 30 feet. And if your engines are working, off you go. Hershey Park has nothing over that ride. But sometimes they say, stop. We have to change out that F-18. We need an EA-6B over Afghanistan instead. But no pilot worth their salt will ever close down their engines until they know that they have been unhooked from that catapult where they can't see. Because if you do shut off your engines, and at 19 and a half, sometimes mistakes are made. One of them pushes the button without your engines turning. You're going off for a good, but your very last ride of your life. So a young 19-year-old comes out on that deck, goes underneath the belly of the plane, where the pilot can't see, and unhooks that plane from this whip, this catapult. And then that person, that young person, walks in front of that plane and stands there and gives a very simple signal to the pilot, and then doesn't move until that pilot has shut off his or her engines, opened up the canopy, gotten safely on deck, and that youth has said everything that I find as I go throughout this state people are yearning for. Go ahead, trust me. I mean, who doesn't say that? And I'm willing to be responsible. I mean, who doesn't want to be responsible? But then that youth said it by something else, by his or her deed, not their words. And I'm willing to be held accountable. And if I made a mistake, and somehow you start heading overboard to your death once you turn off your engines. You're going right through me. 
and I'm going to go overboard with you also. That type of accountability. The willingness, as that young woman did that evening, to be willing to risk her life over doing what she had a responsibility to do is something I've never, ever felt that we have enough of in our leadership of this country. So the question really comes up to the second part of my comments, besides accountability, for what? Particularly for those in political life. In my mind, that woman again that evening said it pretty well. When I joined up during the Vietnam War era, and then went off, there weren't women on ships, never mind flying the most advanced fighter aircraft of the United States Navy. But because she was finally given an equal opportunity to be all she might be, the common mission, the common enterprise of the United States that night better succeeded. In my mind, what you saw that night over the skies of Afghanistan were the two great tenets of our American character that you see are out of balance today in political life. On the one hand, there's this wonderful rugged individualism that that woman demonstrated, as any other guy, anybody American did, to be all she might be. But she always remembered that you can't do better for oneself than by serving others above yourself. She was willing, in pursuit of her, finally given an opportunity by the U.S. government to be a rugged individualism, to do it in common alignment with the common mission that evening. Those two characteristics of our great American uh, ethos is what we have out of balance today, and people are not being willing to be accountable for. The very first one, rugged individualism, I got. The Tea Party gets it. The Republican Party shows it extraordinarily well because our forefathers actually wrote it into the Constitution. It said, government, thou shalt not interfere with my freedom of religion, my freedom of press, my freedom of speech. Because our forefathers, after hundreds of years of their forefathers having studied and lived under governments in Europe, where the king could interfere with their freedom of religion, they fled that and came here, understanding that we no longer wanted a government that would interfere with us. So our Constitution, on the whole, was written with a view of government as a negative force, with such checks and balances in it and proscriptions upon what it can do that thou shalt not government that those people who believe, as you watch one of the parties' convention, that government thou shalt not, have it absolutely right halfway. Because that's how we did form our Constitution. And then a president came along, the first president of the people, Andrew Jackson, and basically said to the nation, no, no, wait a moment here. Always remember that that Constitution begins with three great words, we the people. And whatever the Constitution doesn't proscribe, we the people can prescribe. And so you could have a Republican president like Abraham Lincoln come along and said that we the people need a transcontinental railroad. And we're willing to take our collective resources and make that happen because Wall Street at the time, as you know from your history, wouldn't give any more bonds to build that transcontinental railroad. And then he said, but we also need, as the industrial age begins, to have universities beginning to produce the youth that are going to take these jobs in this new age of ours. And so he established land-grant universities, such as Penn State. And then you can have another wonderful Republican president come along, like President Eisenhower, who understood very well that students were going to have to be going to college now in even greater numbers than back in the landmark university era. And so we established the student loan program, which is now called the Stafford Loan Program, that was established in 58 under the rubric of National Defense Student Loan Program. And then, of course, he established 
the interstate highways. So not only railroads, but we could get across this nation with goods and markets. And then most people's favorite Republican president came along, Richard Nixon, and established the Environmental Protection Agency. Each of them understood that we are a nation of rugged individualism, where government is forbidden to unduly interfere. But each of them also understood that we have built a government that can also be a force for good if we, the people, decide that's what we need. That woman that evening got it. Man, SEAL Team 6 gets it. I've never met more rugged individuals than SEALs, but they all come together, just like America has, by building an extraordinary environment, which is our true American exceptionalism, an extraordinary environment where people have an opportunity here to be all they might be. And we did it in two ways, respecting those two great characteristics of ours. The first was the establishment of equal rights that we're always in search of in a union that's not perfect, but gets more perfect every decade. Women can finally vote. Don't ask, don't tell is throwing out the window in the military. It's where equal rights keeps taking even more and more steps in its perfection. At the same time, in that great extraordinary environment of ours, we used our collective resources to actually build those ladders of success for rugged individuals to then climb up. And all we ask of them when they do climb it is to build one more rung and help us so their kids, their children, can climb even higher. So when you step back and look at the policies of today, the Paycheck Fairness Act, where women make somewhere, depending upon which study you look at, 77 cents on the dollar, 92 cents on the dollar that a guy makes for the same job. Is it the marketplace that determines that? Or does government do something that's good to try to make it equal? So when you take the transportation bill that has been filibustered, and 60% of the roads in Pennsylvania are deficient, of the uh, bridges in Pennsylvania are structurally deficient, do we or do we not respect the rugged individualism of businessmen and women trying to get their goods to market to make them, but then how does government make those roads be usable to get their guards quicker? Since about 25% of all requests by trucks to use bridges in America, Pennsylvania are turned down because of the structurally deficient uh, condition that they're in. Or do you step back and look at the Affordable Care Act? Like in the military, everybody gets health care, not because we're liberal. We are anything but. We do it because of the great dividend it gives us to have rugged individuals who are healthy. So when you get after bin Laden, somebody doesn't have an abscess tooth in SEAL Team 6. We lose 80 to $100 billion every year because of the under and the uninsured in our productivity of this nation. And so my comments tonight were meant as an opening, so I might learn from you. So I went back to teach two courses. One, ethical leadership, which is about accountability. And the other was called Restore the American Dream. And it was a research course to understand within those two tenets of ethical leadership, which I believe this nation is founded upon, I spoke of, how do you then look at policies in a factual way and then give me your opinion once you've done the analysis to bring about the restoration of the American dream because your parents are the very first generation that has not done better than their parents in the history of America by 11%. In 2006, your parents were studied at that age, where they're just about settling in on life, where they're going to be the rest of it, partner in a law firm or hairstylist over here. And they went back every generation of Americans, and every generation, except for your parents, have done better than theirs. You have to double down 
if we are to restore the dream. And I believe very strongly, based upon that woman that night, based upon how I've seen so many policies used or abused or done rightly, that restoring it has to be done within those dual tenets of our character. I have great faith this can be done for three reasons. The very first is we in Pennsylvania, and many of you came from elsewhere, California, New York, whatever, have a great history of doing just that. The very first public school was founded in Pennsylvania in 1682. And when the governor of this, what became this commonweal, this commonwealth, established it, he said, all will attend, all will attend. The rich will pay a reasonable fee, and the poor shall attend for free. So all will be able to contribute to the common wheel. Everyone becomes a rugged individual with the capability, the Lord and trust that he gives them, but all will contribute to the common wheel. The second reason is, as I was telling Vicki or someone out there, when I ran against my party's desires in the primary against the incumbent senator who had switched parties, I couldn't go to a lot of Democratic places because, as one of the head, heads of the city said, the president had called. We have to shut you down. So I used to go to places of faith mosques, temples, synagogues, and a lot of African-American churches. And I came to understand, just like you may understand here at Villanova, a Catholic institution, about that bright thread that runs through the fabric of America, of faith. At times, maybe even my party, too much, believes, doesn't recognize the value of it. And so, to give you an example of what I mean, let me use what's called a midrash from the Jewish faith. It's uh, non-denominational, so <laughs> the place here, but uh, there's a story about a man who left the land of Israel decades ago. And he went to a foreign country, and when he was there, he was arrested as a spy. He was there with someone that he was competing with in business ferocious competition between these two rugged businessmen, and yet they were friends. But they had gone to the same country in order to compete for business. One of them, who had been arrested, was sentenced to hang. And the king, the judge said, when he announced, announced it, that it would be the next day. And he said, please, let me go home and first hug my family goodbye, set my business affairs in order, and then come back to be hung. The jug chuckled and said, absolutely not. But he said, look, I'm here with someone else, a friend. And he has agreed to stay in jail until I return. And if I don't come back, he's agreed to be hung. And the judge said, I got to see this. And so he put his best friend in jail the other gentleman's friend in jail, and the man went back to the land of Israel. He hugged his family goodbye and then set sail, but there was a storm at sea. Thinking he was too late, he ran down the gangplank into the courtyard and found out they were just about to hang his friend. And he called out, stop. I'm the one to be hung. But his friend called back to him and said, no, you're too late. I'm the one to be hung. And these two men, these two competitors, but these two friends argued amongst themselves over whom should hang until the king overheard and demanded that they both come before him. And he listened to them, each arguing for themselves to be hung until he finally said, stop. I will forgive you both under one condition, that you too make me your third friend. That rugged woman that night over Afghanistan 
was more than the third friend of those four special forces who picked up their dead and came home. That, those four Congress members down there that were more worried about their job than doing what the United States of America needed to address that night was not the third friend of this world, nation. And the third reason I have great faith is because of you. I went back to teach, as I said, because from those 19 and a half year old youth out there in the aircraft carrier, average age, 5,000 sailors, you aren't burdened with experience. I went back to teach to learn from them. And the best story I can tell you is this about yourself. When I was at the National Security Council, as Katie mentioned up here, working for President Clinton, one time he was supposed to go over to Normandy. And as the story is told, he, as was his want, liked to have in people who had actually been there, done it, seen it, before he went to speak somewhere at such an important occasion. So he had five men in that evening for a private dinner with him who had landed on the beaches of Normandy. But he also had in five historians that had actually studied that epic battle that had turned the tides of history through the prism of time. And one of them, when he got up to speak, as each of them had a few moments before they went up to the private residence to speak in the White House movie theater, which is a little smaller than this, That historian said to the president how when the youth of America landed, almost all their officers were killed. Because in the German Teutonic mind of their army, you cut off the officer corps and the body, the enlisted, will collapse. This historian said to the president, little did they understand the American army. There they were having landed, their officers killed clawing their way into the sand to try to hide from the hell that was coming down upon them from the bluffs above where the Germans had stationed artillery division and shell after shell was coming down upon them. And then he said, Mr. President, you saw it. Those men looked at one another and said, we're going to get the hell off this beach. And they picked themselves up by twos and threes, Mr. President. And they climbed those bluffs, and they seized them. And then over the months afterwards, they went all the way to Berlin. And then that historian turned back to the president, and he pointed at him, and he said, Mr. President, don't ever forget that whatever that it is, that it that we somehow instill in the youth of America to be like that, Mr. President, that is the national treasure that you must most cherish. You are our national treasure. You may not think about it that way on a Saturday night, but you are it. So many people across this nation have felt let down. You can hear it all the time. Who of you are going to get engaged? Who of you are going to buy off? That it isn't one way or the other, but there's dual tenants. I was proud when they said I was at the ideological center of the entire Congress. Because I think there is a proper balance between these two poles that separate this nation today of rugged individualism and the common wheel, the common enterprise. I think they come together. That's why my father came here to this country be all he could be, and yet gave so much in the service of World War II to this nation. So I'll stop, but you're it. You are really it. I don't say it lightly to you. I've said that to my crews over 30 years. 
And now we're saying it to a new generation. And I will have to tell you again, it's sorely needed because you will have to, because the statistics I just said really double down. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to take questions on anything. And actually, this is the part I like, because then I really get to learn from the tenor often of your questions, what's on the youth, the students, the people of the future's minds. So thank you. I paid somebody to ask one question. Who was it? It was you. Thank you. Well, I think your generation has a real positive thing going for it. I mean, they call you the me generation, me Facebook, you know, me YouTube, you know, me, me. I look at it a little different. I think your generation, and having now taught them, seems to be one that isn't like me when I grew up in the 60s in high school down the road at Cardinal O'Hara. To my mind, we just, you know, is almost, you know, the hippies, the, the, we, you don't disauthority. You just think it's fairly irrelevant. Institutions don't matter as much to you anymore. Okay, so there's IBM, I'll build my Facebook. You know, all of a sudden I'm the kid who can believe that I can sell a company for $2 billion because I build that real virtual reality thing, whatever it was that Facebook just bought. Your generation's different. It's healthy, because the institutions of America are broken, both parties. I mean, even when the governor got on and said, Sestak's going to get killed, we're going to crush him. Nobody was paying attention to the head of the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania. The institution wasn't working. Do you think Congress is working? That's a question. Okay. <laughs> You think Wall Street is actually working? I mean, it's doing some things. It's meant to gain capital. But the day, the day that we voted for that bill I told you, the value, your, your federal government budget is $4 trillion. Do you know what the value of derivatives were that night when the vote failed and the market dropped precipitously? Nominal value was $800 trillion. So first off, I think it's very healthy that you all seem to be a generation that says, maybe we need a rejuvenation of what our institutions are. And by the way, it doesn't mean just change. It means I'm going to start my own thing. I think that's very healthy. Number two, and, and this is the biggest, I think and because of that, that's why I have great faith. But I also think how to do it is to be involved a lot more. And everybody always tells you that. I get it. And do I think it's going to be easy to change this? No. But the fact I am seeking the Senate again isn't because I need the job. <laughs> it's because I'm concerned about whither goes America. So there's nothing more for me to tell you then. You're very fortunate because of how you probably view having come through this recession and understood that the institutions didn't do it very well, nor did they prevent it. And if anybody is accountable for it, tell me who's responsible for Wall Street and held, been held accountable. Can you tell me? Or Katrina, or not finding weapons of mass destruction, for having the head of the NSA not exactly tell the truth to Congress. And so if this lack of accountability in our institutions are there, you're healthy that I think you will build new ones and create them. And eventually, I just hope, Stories like this, you'll understand what people are looking for and being accountable and being engaged in any way. It doesn't have to be in politics, but it has to be if it's on Wall Street with a sense of accountability for what your mission is, not just making another trillion like the big white whale across in London that has 32 billion lost because he wasn't accountable for the common enterprise. He was just accountable for the rugged individualism. It's not a great answer, but it's the only one I can give you. There's no one way to fix it, but you can't fix it unless you get involved. Question? Yes, sir. Well, that's what somebody wrote. I don't, you know, it's okay with me. Uh, so, you 
Yeah. Everybody heard the question? Back there, could you hear it? All right. I, I hope I'm going to take this. Stop me if I'm answering a question you didn't ask. I think it's an extraordinarily powerful thing. Um, and I say that because it's a new way to do media. And so much can be transformed for it. Think about the Arab Spring. And I'm not saying where it is today. I'm seeing what happened. Could that have been done without Facebook, Tweet, YouTube? Think of what we know that's happening in Syria. Think about Martin Luther when he had the great transformation, when he stood up to the Catholic Pope. Instead, stop ripping us off to build St. Peter's Cathedral. He was successful for one reason, this poor itinerant monk who could hardly write because they just had invented the printing press. And because of that, everything he said could be written down and distributed. This is why I think this is an extremely powerful tool. So am I, are you asking my opinion about it or how to use it? Well, I think it's fairly relatively easy. Think about, let's give you an answer, okay? Uh, think about um, Kickstarter. They've now loaned $2 billion to individual, from, and $2 billion has been collected from across this nation to invest in companies. A guy went on the other day for $10,000 and ended up with $400,000. You're telling me that's not institution building? It's a little more flat, but that's how this internet phenomena is being used. Um, the ability of a woman who went out and didn't like, I forgot what it was, something that a company did, and all of a sudden it's rapid across it and people wouldn't buy from it, and all of a sudden an institution was impacted. So I'm not saying you necessarily always build another institution, but you can create change, transformation. So those are the, well, this is why I think I mean, I've got to get better at it. Um, I didn't use it sufficiently. But Rand Paul, or the father, who's he? Uh, the congressman, Ron Paul. He, used, he put one tweet out, he raised $2 million. I've got to call 4,000 people to get raised 100,000. And so there are ways that I think, it's why you see senators today, look at Cory Booker. 1.2 million. I mean, can you tell me what policy stands for? But everybody here shook their head when I said 1.2 million tweets. I mean, tweet follow, whatever, you know? That's how it's being used. I'm not saying it's always going to be used for the best way. I mean, are we enamored with him because he has such a following? But do people know what he stands for? I mean, there's a difference there, all right? But do I think it's revolutionary in being able to transform? Yes. It just depends how it's used. Are those okay examples? I'm quite enamored with it. And I don't get it as well as you do, but it's just another way of media, just like the Gutenberg printing press was. Question? Somebody? Yes. Yeah, I, I think this is a very legitimate point, and I keep going back and forth of how I feel on this. You know, because you can see on the one hand, I'd say, what a great tool. It got Cory Booker helped elected. But on the other hand, tell me the policy he most stands for. Okay. <laughs> All right. And by the way, I've used that example in class over that question. And so, and on the other hand, I know this. In the past two years, I've done 290 events around this state. Um, because I also find that people are becoming less trusting, and that's going over into Twitter, Facebook, and things like that. So I don't think it is the answer. And I think I find more common sense among Americans today than I think most politicians do. 
and they still want to feel and touch you. I don't mind Fox. I've been on Sean Hannity about a dozen times. I enjoy that combativeness of the ideas. You know, where it's not about him or me, it's about the ideas going back and forth. So I think you can use Twitter and others to succinctly try to make a message out there. But I, I think that that doesn't mean, this is where I finally have been starting to come down, that the people are still, because of the jauntist eye they look at every leader with today, I mean, look at the polls, are still not going to be mesmerized for long by that. They're still going to want to touch and feel. And any good person who still gets around and lets them see, it's why I accepted today to talk. You know, is and why I was down at the University of Penn to speak at a recidivism conference, or to talk, you know, be at a recidivism conference on Saturday, because I still think that's invaluable. So I don't have a perfect answer, but I know that for a while there in the year of anger 2010, the TV media was able to dumb things down. And so the key is you can't just walk away from the old fashioned way of touching people just because there's a new tool out. Question? Yes. Yes. Yeah, what do you, what's your career going to be? Uh, I will be working for the, for the Middle East. In policy for the Middle East? All right. Um, and what do you think about uh, um, the position of this administration on Israel and Palestinian, Palestine? So you agree with him? Yes. Yes. So you agree with the president? Okay. Um, let me then give you an example. Um, are you going to be willing, as you, you know, you get to a certain position, all right, to lose your job over what you just said? You say yes. Let me give you an example, all right? And this is, I, I can't give you exactly, but I will tell you what I'm, I think is missing. It has to be about you. I can only give you an example, all right? And I'll use me then, all right? Um, I agree with you. I'm a big two-state solution person. I've been to Israel I can't, countless times, about a dozen or less. I still have my shirt, never again Masada, all right? Um, I left my Aegis cruiser there to protect air defense for them, all right? Um, in the military, I would die to defend Israel. But I was asked, to speak to a group called CARE. Ever hear of them? The Council of, if I have this right, Islam, American Islamic Relations. I didn't even know it was on my calendar. My brand new scheduler put it on, three months as a congressman. It hit the internet before I even knew because the group announced it. But I said, what's going on here? You know, all of a sudden my press secretary's coming in and I'm getting beat up right and left. 
And evidently this group, even though George Bush had spoken at it years earlier, Senator Feinstein had, well, she had actually then returned her medal they gave her or something, um, said somebody in the group, the national group, not the local group who invited me, my constituents, to speak to the local group, had somehow become on allegations of giving money to Hamas. Okay, now they went to court years later, and I don't think it was ever proven, but nevertheless, there was some smoke there. Steny Hoyer, majority leader of the Democratic Party, called and said, Joe, you can't speak to them. I mean, when I did go to speak to them, and mind you, uh, I mean, I had, as was announced here, the Navy's anti-terrorism organization, you know? And so I did go speak. Why? Well, they're Americans. <laughs> I mean, I landed on the wrong beach, but am I going to get back on the LCM and go to sea and stand on a safe seat, or do I go talk? And so I took Ellie Wiesel's wonderful speech, Speak Truth to, Truth to Power. If you remember, he went to the White House, received from President Reagan the highest honor ever given to a citizen, the Freedom of Congressional you know, Medal that's given by the President. Freedom of, I forgot what it's called, but... But when he went there, criticized by Jewish organizations for accepting President Reagan because he was going to go to Bitburg where the SS are buried, he said, no, I'm still going to go and I'm going to praise him for what he's done for us. And at the end he said, but Mr. President, your place is not with the SS. Your place is with us. So here I am to an organization that does great things for people of color coming from the Middle East after 9-11. If you're a Sikh, they touch your turban, which is the same as asking a woman to disrobe in America. It's the equivalent of that, if you know anything about the Sikh religion. And I said, so I went there and said, you do great things. But like the Quran says, if you do not condemn your brother by name, not just condemn terrorism, but Hamas and Hamla, you cannot achieve what, as you know in Islam, I've forgotten the word now, beauty is, which is the highest peak of... But you know what? $700,000 of contributions for talking. And during my race in the Senate, they put up an ad during a Phillies game, oh my gosh, playoffs, saying that I funded Hamas. Now, those four congressmen were just worried about trying to save America. I was just want, felt I should talk to my fellow constituents, you know what I mean, and tell them what I thought. Are you willing to do that when you're starting to rise up in a think tank and take on an administration that you like and they're wrong and you know your promotion or you're about to be nominated for a job in the administration is going to. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm talking about GM, where today the CEO testified because for years they'd known that ignition thing was killing people. I'm talking about the pharmaceutical up the road, Pfizer. They knew for seven years from its test that the drugs that were being sold off-label were killing kids, but kept selling them. I'm not tossing you to change the world. I'm asking you to make a difference. And so I can't tell you exactly how, but when I say engaged, I don't mean be engaged and be in politics and all. I mean be willing to be accountable for what you know is right. And so I can't tell you a specific event, but I'll tell you, it's a shame the Phillies are playing that playoff game. <laughs> Does that answer the question? I mean, this is not, this is, but this is who we are. Why do we, why am I going to go to Gradyford Maximum Security Prison on May 17th, Armed Forces Day? to be the principal speaker for the Vietnam chapter there, headed by a guy who committed murder, because those guys were accountable. They went to war, they came home, PTSD, Vietnam, and we kicked them to the curb, and we didn't take care of them, and many ended up there. That's accountability. Question is, I'm starting to lose people. So no, <laughs> yes. Say that again, please. Well, I think that much like somebody who does civil disobedience, that's fine, but you've got to pay the crime. I mean, you've got to pay you broke the rules. 
I think anybody who gives away secrets should be willing to pay for what they did. And I think he should be held accountable. All of a sudden, to make him a hero, I don't get it. He should be held, he should, if, okay, he felt he was doing a good deed, but he's got to be willing to be held accountable. And he broke a law, which frankly, I think is a good law. Because, as you know from Wikipedia, when the WikiLeaks went out, I'm, I'll tell you, just in Burma alone, they quickly, because in those WikiLeaks, it was all about this guy over here and this guy over here, and all of a sudden they're endangered by the autocratic things. So who and what is harmed by that? Now, do I think we overly classify? You bet I do. I did it as a military officer. But that's a different issue. Um, so, but he's, you know, if he, being accountable doesn't mean being, you know, forgiven for breaking the law. He felt it was the right thing to do, he should pay the crime. Why do you ask that? I don't know. I never thought about it. Um, is it bad body language? It's, it's a good question. Well, let me answer that, all right? Um, I wrote her name down. Uh, Abigail. I asked her if I can get a, I got her email so I can look at the tape afterwards. Because the course I teach isn't called just Restore the American Dream. It's called Restore the American Dream and its political platform. So when the students every three weeks, it's a very great question you asked. When the students every three weeks have a new research topic, why is the incarceration rate of women increased 92% in Pennsylvania the last eight years? I want to know. Something's happening here. You know? And... Uh, uh, is Common Core the right thing to do in secondary school? But then they have to get up and present their paper in 800 words or less as though they're in Elk County. You ever been to Elk County? It's beautiful. But, and I'm going to look at this to see how I presented it. Why? Because if there's a great book written by David Brooks, uh, the editorial guy writes for the op-ed, slightly right of center for the New York Times, that talks about cognitive and non-cognitive reasoning of people. So have you ever seen a politician elected who had a mustache? Yeah. Can you think of one politician who is right now is elected and he has a mustache? Right, back in. Because we just, we don't like that body language. Do you know what I mean? So am I conscious that, you know, so yeah, I might, have I has it changed? I never thought about how it's changed, but am I conscious a lot more of how I come across? Yeah, because frankly, if I had been a better communicator, I might have won that last election. It was nobody's fault but mine. I mean, I came within 80,000 votes when our gubernatorial candidate, by one and a half points, gubernatorial candidate lost by 10, five Democratic congressmen lost by 11. But I had the biggest funding gap of any senator or governor's race in America except one. And yet we came that close, if I had been a better communicator, Maybe I would have won, and if my answers weren't so long. <laughs> but yeah, well, I'm curious though, why'd you ask that? Well, I don't, it's, I'm not as conscious when I'm up here, but I love people who are in drama because I think Theater is like someone once said, it's the one place where one human being tells another human being what it's like to be a human being. When people ask me, what should I do if I want to enter politics, I say, oh, it's not poli-sci. I hope I didn't offend anybody. And I was poli-sci. Uh, it's study psychology, study anthropology, study human nature. Understand where people come from. And part of that is, when you go into Elk County, and if a tell one vignette. After I was done and I lost my race, I went to every single one of the six, seven counties to say thank you. I went back to 100 of those churches to say thank you. I didn't want to think I showed up, just wanted to vote, and that I didn't, I mean, I did care that they came out as they did. But in Elk County, and that's my litmus test, is when I went there, it was, it was uh, I had about 10, it was very, very, it's a very small county of people and very conservative, and I had a small number of volunteers, and I thanked them, and then I drove away, and we looked for a place to eat. And it was a young man, Ben Takamoto, who graduated from Haverford. 
mainline kid, he's going to be president of the United States some days at UCLA at law school or something, you know? Wonderful man. And as we sat down, you know, it, was, it wasn't like around Villanova where you go right out here and you find this beautiful little, you know, eatery. You know, we finally found a bar. And it was, uh, you know, every truck had its NRA sticker, pickup truck. And we sat down and we're eating away. I said, Ben, this is great barbecue. And Ben looks at me and says, you know, Congressman, because I was still a congressman those last first two months, you know, and before I left, he said, if it wasn't with you, I probably wouldn't have gone into a place like this. He said, Ben, these are my sailors. If my party can't at least talk with them and understand them and appreciate them, not for their vote to mitigate their anger about because we don't, we don't deserve the mantle of leadership. And a lot of that is not just body language. It's listening to people. And I had to get better at it. If I had been better, I probably would have won. I really believe that. I had a great team. I just wasn't good enough. Last question or two, I probably have bored you. His last question? Um, yes, and then I'll stop. I promise. Pardon me? Um, it's, I, I, I have to say that there is a difference, but part of it is because we place in the military the youth in a demanding, responsible position. I mean, I graduated from college. I had 45 guys working for me. I mean, I looked really young when I was out of college. And yet, they were supposed to say yes or no, sir. I mean, it was pretty daunting. Never mind the young enlisted, like who has to all of a sudden fix that plane. So one of it is, it is different. And I find that when a youth comes to work for me, I'm pretty, I ask a lot. Because I've seen the youth work like this and be accountable. And so I find the ability at times, if you haven't come from that template where your peers are that way, because the organization is that way, that sometimes the follow-up has to be done a bit more, you know? And so I think part of it is the template, the standards of what I'm in as compared to that. So, for example, when I got down there to, to Washington, D.C., I was interviewing this woman to be a political director, awesome woman. I was going to hire her because she really impressed me. She understood follow-up, management, leadership. She'd already done a job. I said, she then got pregnant and decided to leave Congress, so I didn't get her, which is I've kept contact with her. I hope to have her someday again if she comes back, but, and I come back. But she said to me, I said, um, you sound like you enjoy managing, following up and all. She says, yeah. She said, we don't do it here in Congress because to his point, we sell. And very few people then take the time to learn to manage. And so if the United States of America, for example, can defeat fascism and Japanese militarism in three years, how can we not roll out a website in the same amount of time? Where's the accountability for that? And by the way, instead of saying I'm responsible for getting it fixed, wait, well, wait a moment. You're accountable for it not being ready. And so I don't think you find that attitude permeating as much. Do I think that there are individuals? Yes. There's a young man who works for me. He's been since high school in my races. He's probably going to run my campaign. He's a senior in college. He runs my 25 interns. Uh, which I've been running this campaign on. And um, he left high school. I delayed going to high school for a year to campaign, and this, this individual. So people do have it. And if you come aboard here, we try to imbue you with it because I owe it to people that are going to invest in you that we're accountable with time and money. As I end, I'll say this. Um, my name is Joe Sestak. <laughs> and as I just said, and thank you for bringing it up because I would have forgotten because I got so much. I, I, I enjoy this stuff. Um, 
I'm always looking for interns. Uh, I just actually hired my first two people, both of them interned for me, because I knew what I was getting, you know? I like to check people and all. But um, I, uh, for the last couple of years, have run this whole thing and everything I've done for three years, preparing, so to, you know, to whatever I would do um, with youth. I was known as having the youngest campaign staff and the youngest congressional staff uh, of anyone. I mean, I did need an adult, my classmate from the Naval Academy, to oversee it. But I'm a big believer that you all are more willing to go and find some different way to resolve something. And that's what I like. So if anybody ever is interested, my, my, I'm on the website, joesestack.com, but my personal email is my name, joe at joesestack.com. And I'd always love to have interns. Am I allowed to pitch like that? Okay. <laughs> well, it's already out. Uh, but, um, look, thanks for coming tonight. Um, and can I tell one last story? You're too bored. May I? Show of hands, yes? You're not going to hurt my feelings. All right. Um, this isn't quite apropos, but so you know, um, everybody, I think, should strive to be a believe. I thought I was going to be a millionaire, but then I went to the Navy. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's that rugged individualism, you know what I mean? But there also is another psychic value of that common good. Um, I commanded a ship called the Samuel B. Roberts. The first ship named one of the Samuel B. Roberts, because we tend to name ships after one another, if they're really, really famous names. And this was, ship was named after a young sailor that had lost his life at the Battle of Guadalcanal, and they built the first Samuel B. Roberts whose first battle was the Battle of Lady Gough, where it fought alongside my father on another ship as a young officer. And in this battle, if anybody is a naval historian, and I'm sure that's not a major here at Villanova, but that was where uh, the Japanese decoyed Admiral Bull Halsey, who was a real bull, and he, they decoyed him with all the aircraft carriers and battleships to go chasing a false Japanese armada. And just left what we call in the Navy small boys, small tin cans, little small destroyers to protect General MacArthur who was going back ashore in Lady Gulf, the famous thing where he wads ashore. After they decoyed all the big ships out, they came from around the island. And back in those days, radar was brand new. You didn't have satellites. You know, you didn't have Snowden. And, uh, so they came around the islands and were about to fall upon and just bombard the hell out of MacArthur and basically annihilate the landing, setting back World War II, probably delaying the end of it in that theater for another two years. And all was left of these little small boys, like the Sammy B. Roberts. And so what they did, since their guns were like little pop guns, they might go three miles where the big battleships could go 15 or 20 miles, they laid down smoke screens and they went in and got in close and sort of like, you know, going against, you know, it's sort of like an 18-year-old going against Muhammad Ali, just trying to get inside his defenses to kind of land a punch. And a lot of, they finally, because of the confusion, they thought, my gosh, there's a lot more here than we thought. The big battleships must be here. And the Japanese turned around. But in the fight, they lost a lot of these small ships. And on board one of the ships was a young man named Carr. He, they called him Gunner Carr. Gunner because he manned the after gun mount, but you all know Gunner Carr. Just a good guy. Seniors, juniors, peers, everybody just likes this guy. It's just, you know, not because he's a, just a fungus, he's just one of those persons. And as the ship was sinking, the captain gave the order to the executive officer, go around the main, everywhere and make sure all men are off. And he came to the after gun mount, and he found that Gunner Carr laid mangled, basically almost off, in a state of delirium almost, was trying to get up on one leg with a shell in his arm to put it in a gun mount that was awry. You know, it had been destroyed, but at least it was awry. And he took the shell out of his arm, the XO did, and said, I'll be right back, and went to get somebody to come back with a stretcher. When they came back, they found that Gunner Carr had crawled over, picked up the shell, and was trying to get back up on a leg to put it in the gun mount to keep fighting. 
for the ship. They took the shell out of his arms. They laid it on deck. They put him in a stretcher, got him to the bridge, got him into a lifeboat. We then died. But the captain, when he wrote his battle report of having lost his ship, penned the words that became the motto of our ship. And it said, there was no high, he ended his report by saying, there was no higher honor than to have served with a man such as that. I don't think there's any greater honor. I mean, that guy was a rugged individual, <laughs> but he understood like that woman. There is something about serving others above yourself as you try to be all you can be. And at the end of the day, that's the kind of accountability to your question from the Middle East that I think has to be done in lots of little ways. Thank you for listening to me.